Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. Amitha Kalachandran is an epidemiologist, physician, and a writer. She's a graduate of the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, received her MD at the University of Toronto, her fellowship in integrative medicine from the University of Arizona, and a journalism fellowship from the Monk School of Global Affairs. She has additional certifications in public health from the National Board of Public Health Examiners, humanitarian assistance through the Harvard Humanitarian Institute, and she's a regular contributor to the New York Times Well section, where she covers a diverse range of topics from health and wellness to medical education. She's definitely one of my favorites to read there. In addition to the New York Times, her award-winning writing has been featured in the Washington Post, New York Mag, LA Times, Wired, the Boston Globe, and the Atlantic. And today we're going to cover all things wellness, from nature bathing to making sense of all those confusing nutrition studies out there. Amitha, welcome. Thanks for having me. It is an honor to have you here. One of my favorite contributors at the New York Times. I love when we see your pieces go up and live and we read them and get so excited. Thanks so much. So sweet. (laughs) Well, you do such an incredible job of, I think, bridging Western and and Eastern and understanding the the tensions and uh, like like some of your column, the fact and the fiction (laughs) and the nuance. You get it. So something you've written about, which I think is super interesting, is this idea of behavioral change and creating it in adults. So can you unpack that a little bit for us? Mm Mm-hmm. So behavioral change in adults is quite complex. I think that it involves, it's, there's multiple layers, and we know that a lot of our um, health and medical issues are lifestyle-related. So really what we're getting to, getting at with that is how do we change behaviors over time that are more conducive to health and healing? And, and it can be quite complex. It's It's nothing that can really be solved with pill or surgery, it really involves having a good relationship with your healthcare professional, in many cases a physician, having um, someone with you that can motivate you and keep you um, on track with your goals. And it's really about also having compassion for oneself as we, all of us will relapse in some way. Um, We might set a particular goal and for one reason or another, not meet it one day and to really have that compassion for yourself that, you know what, you can always start again the following day. So it is it is complex and it is something that, in my view, involves multiple different approaches, multiple different healthcare professionals, coaches, uh, that sort of thing. Are kids easier? Um, I think that kids are, which is my focus, kids are interesting in the sense that if you encourage and build and teach healthful habits early on in life, it's more likely that they can be sustained in the life course. It's much harder to make changes the longer that you're ingrained in a specific behavior. Um, So I think it's really heartening when we see things, for example, like programs in schools or even children's books that are really looking at how do we start kids off on the right foot regardless of where they come from and what resources they may have, just really those um, healthy habits early on so that they just become norms. So how, as the father of a three-year-old girl and a seven-month-old girl, how early? When should I start? We're ready. (laughs) We're trying already, but... 
I mean, I think part of it is also modeling those behaviors too, right? So kids are like sponges. They really absorb everything around us. And the more that I read even about things, for, for example, like mental health or how we navigate our relationships as we're adults, so much of that really is ingrained so early in life. So when we take that principle and we apply it to other aspects, whether it's, you know, uh, for example, health and medicine, um, how do we model those behaviors in children? How do we model acceptance? How do we model love? How do we model, um, you know, choosing food as fuel versus food as comfort, mm-hmm. that sort of thing? So, so I would say it really does start uh, yourself as a parent um, and also having open conversations with children early on. A lot of children are, you know, they're smarter than you think. Um, And really getting a sense of how are they making choices for themselves? Are they making informed choices? Can they rationalize the choices that they make? (laughs) They might say, you know, I want a chocolate bar. Maybe unpacking that with them, saying, "Do do you really want a chocolate bar right now? Or are you feeling anxious? Or are you feeling stressed or upset or... Um, is it is it more of a comfort thing? So really getting them to explore some of those um, decision-making factors, I think, could be really valuable. Yeah, and I think, as you pointed out, you have to model it. They're little sponges. Mm-hmm. In my favorite example, Colleen, my wife, loves Daily Harvest, so she you know makes her Daily Harvest smoothie every morning. So Ellie, our three-year-old, wants to be part of that. She's like, I want smoothie. I want smoothie. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And I think that that's a really good point, too, is something for example something like nutrition as opposed to lecturing a child and saying you know you need to eat your vegetables giving them choices in the sense of you know helping them you know offering that they help with food preparation for example or if you Uh, go to the grocery store um, giving them the choice to pick a new vegetable to try for instance, I know Jamie Oliver has, has done a lot in terms of children in the U.S. and their ability to identify vegetables or not identify, you know, not identify a lot of vegetables that most of us might eat on a day-to-day basis. And so it's a great learning opportunity for them and for them to feel like they actually have agency over yeah. what they might eat on that day. And they're more likely to, to try new foods that, that way as well. It's funny, vegetables is very topical in our house last night because Colleen and I love, uh, we do some broccoli and cauliflower, put it in the oven, roast it, char it, kill it with olive oil, and and that's dinner, a huge Mm -hmm. bowl. And last night, Ellie was just like not into it. And so Colleen remembered Ellie loves the wiggles. And Emma, one of the wiggles, Colleen remembered seeing a YouTube video of her. Emma, if you're you're listening... uh, we love you. Uh, she she she's really health conscious, and she travels all the time. And so she brings vegetables with her on the road, and heats them up. And like that's awesome. And so we showed it to Ellie. We're like, you don't want your vegetables for tonight? Look at Emma Wiggle, who you adore and love. She's t- look how excited she's about vegetables. She loves vegetables so much. She brings them when she travels. And she was just like enamored. She was wild. and then it was like, okay, I'll have a little broccoli. Yeah. <laughs> And so, you know, you mentioned earlier, so talking about, you know, Western and Eastern and, and healing and, you know, something, something you've talked about is, you know, hospitals. And on one hand, hospitals are a place for healing. And then on the other hand, it, um, 
making a little bit of a joke, but there's there's truth and that's a great place to go to get sick. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> a lot a lot to think about there. Mm-hmm. So w- what are your thoughts? So I mean, off of that, we I mean we should be very lucky that we have hospitals. We we need hospitals. There's they there's save no, lives. They save yes, lives. There's yes. no there's no doubt about that. They are uh, a place where a lot of people get healing. Um, but I think we also have to bear in mind that healing happens in many many places and certainly specifically for acute care conditions if you get into a car accident if you have uh, a heart attack something like that you absolutely need to be in a hospital you need those resources you need those uh you know the the doctors and the nurses that have the expertise to address those concerns certainly there are issues with um infectious you know hospital acquired infections and that sort of thing that people you know might scare people off in terms of hospitals but really at the end of the day if you have particularly if you have an acute condition that requires a hospital visit there's really no better place to go hospital saved Khalid's wife from a (laughs) life-threatening pulmonary embolism we gave birth mm. to both of our daughters in a hospital, so. Wow. No, exactly, yeah. exactly. And and I think, I mean, when we think about giving birth, there's, I mean, that's a whole, whole separate conversation in terms of people that are choosing home births and that sort of thing. But in, in summary, I mean, hospitals really are the best place to get acute care. A pulmonary embolism is a very serious mm-hmm. condition. That's not the type of thing where you, you just want to deal with in, you know, a small health center, ideally, or, or at home. Um, but I, but I do think that healing, as I mentioned, does happen in, in many contexts. And I think that, um, a lot of it happens on a day-to-day basis in terms of the choices that we make at home, the communities that we live in, the environments that we cultivate, um, our workplaces, all of those are conducive to well-being and health as well as the opposite of that, which is, you know, distress and illness. So what can we do better in, in, in the hospital experience, in your opinion, what can we do better in, in the healing process there mm-hmm. or to encourage or facilitate the healing process? What mm-hmm. can we do better? So I think if we think of hospitals, um, you know, if we think of just even the architecture of hospitals, there's some really interesting research that Roger Ulrich uh, started doing in the late 70s. He's an architect. He's one of the world's experts in terms of how buildings make us feel and how conducive buildings are to our health and healing. So he's been involved in a lot of hospital projects over the years. His research found links between, for example, the presence of natural light, um, clean air that doesn't recirculate, all of those things in terms of how quickly patients heal. So one aspect is really how can hospitals best optimize the physical environment so that it feels more like a place that one might want to heal. So, you know, maybe less of the fluorescent lights, maybe more natural light, um, using uh, paints that are, you know, non-VOC, all of those kinds of things that we tend to associate with just a more welcoming and healing environment, not just for patients, but also for doctors and nurses and other healthcare Mm -hmm. professionals who are working there for hours and hours and hours at at a time. How can they, you know, how can we optimize a physical environment so they can do their best. So I think that's then that's one aspect of it. The second aspect is, you know, how doctors communicate with their patients and this and nurses as well. And this really comes down to 
some of the constraints that we have in our healthcare system. The reality is that healthcare professionals and you know doctors, just as one example, don't have, unfortunately, hours to spend with one particular patient, whether it's in a clinic or in, in a hospital situation. So what are some things that can be done to best optimize that interaction? Um, and sometimes it involves having larger teams that interact with the patient. Sometimes it involves helping train doctors to be better communicators. Um, you know, so there's multiple layers to that. But we've all been in situations where we've had very pleasant experiences in a hospital and have had very unpleasant experiences in the hospital. Um, and then another thing is, which I've written about, um, is noise. Um, you know, the, the just the auditory experience of being in a hospital, the inability to get sleep, all of those aspects too can be really challenging. So I think these are all important issues for anyone that's involved in healthcare administration or people that are you know, hospital CEOs to really think about how do you redesign the patient experience so that it's more conducive to healing, it's more conducive to healthcare professionals doing their best work. Um, and I think those are really important questions to answer and explore. Yeah, I, I forget. There was a study, and the exact details escape me at the moment, but something along the lines of, I think, the, the rate of breast cancer among nurse practitioners who work the night shift was, like, astronomical compared to another set of nurse practitioners who did not work the night mm -hmm. shift. As you think about, like... One, disrupting the circadian rhythm and then the quality of the light. Um, it's just, you think about the whole experience, you need to take care of the people who are actually trying to help people heal. And it, it's just, it's broken. Yeah, I totally agree. I think this whole concept of healing the healer is really something that is um warrants a deeper discussion and is something that people are understanding now. We, we, for years, people forgot about the doctors and the nurses. They were like, well, you're just part of my healing journey. And, but it's also about making sure that they're healthy too, because. <laughs> well, it, it, it's hard to have great bedside manner when, you know, you pulled an 18 hour shift mm -hmm. and, and haven't slept and you're on to the and you're running behind and someone over there is you know waiting for something that's potentially life-saving and maybe someone over there is it, it's t to manage that all if i think of uh the mental load mm -hmm. that someone working in a hospital has whether it's in the er or whatever whatever wing it may be wow yeah no absolutely <laughs> and i think and it's interesting that you mentioned that that study because there's there's been similar studies with flight attendants for example that are you know working these long shifts overnight shifts and so you know i think it will be interesting to look at the research that's that looks at circadian rhythm disruption and that sort of thing and how that links to disease we don't have the answers yet but those are really interesting studies and the other thing it's it's not uh, maybe it's because i watched the uh the Aaron Hernandez documentary on Netflix. So my mind went to like, when you're talking about natural light and rehabilit you know, and healing and rehabilitation, I'm like, well, the opposite of that is prison. How are you mm. ever going to rehabilitate? Like if we talk about all the, f <laughs> mm -hmm. like that's just one of many factors, which is wrong with our prison system, mm -hmm. which is another discussion. But you did mention, so you mentioned natural light and where that led me to was the other great piece you wrote in the New York times about 
forest bathing. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, wow, I love this. <laughs> so let's, let's talk about the power of, of forest bathing and why it's so important to get outside and, and what does science say and why you're a fan. Yeah. So forest bathing, so the term in Japan is Shinrin-yuku. So if it effectively just means spending time in nature, spending time in the forest, um, unplugged from technology, really being present, allowing all of your senses to experience the, you know, the trees and, and just the smells and what you're hearing, just having a very pure sensory experience in the forest. So on the one hand, um, you know, someone might read that and say, well, of course, it's common sense. We all feel nice when we're, you know, in nature, we all feel less stressed. Um, but on the other hand, it is, in Japan, it can almost have this ritual um, effect as well. So, for example, when I was there uh, speaking to one of the researchers, she spends most of her time, she's a surgeon in, in Tokyo, and Tokyo is a very bustling city. There's not a lot of green space. Um, but she will go once every month or two up north uh, into the forest and lead these forest bathing sessions where it will be a group of, you know, around 10 people. They'll walk together um, quite mindfully, slowly. They'll sit down. They'll just absorb the sounds, um, you know, and then they'll just notice things in their, in their body that might be changing. For example, their heart rate, um, their blood pressure, that sort of thing. And the science is interesting because... On the one hand, there is evidence that it does, you know, regular forest bathing does have an impact in terms of um, decreasing blood, uh, blood pressure. Um, but there have been other studies that have actually not found much of a difference. So in my, in my article for the Times, I did talk about the studies that found that heart rate variability um, improved mood improved, um, but there were also other studies that found that blood pressure um, didn't only improve for a period of time, that mood might be boosted for a period of time, but then it goes back to normal within a couple of, uh, a couple of weeks. So it's been mixed. So I think what I would say right now is that it is a pretty, if you have a park or a forest that's close to you, that's safe, that you can go, um, you know, during the daytime, why not? Sure. It's not going to hurt you. <laughs> it's not. It's, there there it's were no not. studies that indicated blood pressure was, was raised significantly. Right. Yeah, exactly. So to me, it's a common sense option. Um, and it's also a chance to really, I mean, so much, so many of us spend so much of our time online or with our phones and to just, you know, put it on airplane mode, turn it off and just, be absorbed in in your surroundings and i think that there's something really wonderful uh, about that um, and if you're curious you know maybe notice your heart rate maybe just you know take your pulse when you're there and see if you do notice notice a difference um, and it can just be you know it is just a another form of a mindfulness practice if you don't have a, mm -hmm. a regular one so to me it just makes it does make a lot of sense were there any, I'm curious, were there minimums in terms of how many days, what, how much time you need to spend? Or mm -hmm. um, From what I've seen, it, that's also been mixed. I think it's the meditation research in general um, suggests, for example, like if you do at least 20 minutes a day, um, that, right. can be, that can be helpful. Um, for forest bathing, it's less clear. I think that there will be research as we 
you know, as more people start looking into it. Um, but again, it's so it's so tough to extrapolate these big research studies and yes. apply it to any one person and say, okay, this is the minimum amount I need to do per week. It really, it depends on so many other factors in terms of your lifestyle. So if you can get out every day, that would be great. But, you know, if you're making a choice between that and spending time with your family or your children, you're going to have to make those choices for, for yourself, I think. Yeah, you said mixed a couple of times in the context of studies and research. And, and I was like, you hit the nail on the head because for someone... You know, I, I'm always on Twitter. I, I will look at nature. I'll look at Gemma. I'll just, I love this stuff. And I'll see what, what's, what does this one say? What does that one say? And it feels like everything is open to interpretation. And in the past, you know, I think in media and, and people, Anahat O'Connor wrote about this, I think at the Times, mm-hmm. like, interpreting data interpreting research is tricky and i think in the past i think everyone would just run with like here's the headline Mm. you know in the extreme level like you know meat's good meat's bad eggs good eggs bad this good that bad and then no actually they didn't say that if you look at the details and then and it's uh it's tough for people who aren't embedded embedded in this or not professionals to it's even difficult for professionals to interpret. Like, mm-hmm. what does this really say? How big was the study? Was it, you know, was it double blind placebo? Is it, not like, it just. Yep. It's yeah. tough out there. It is, it is <laughs> tough out all there. This. Definitely. And I think that there's so many, there's so many different ways to, to, to address that. Because on the one hand, medicine evolves by nature, mm-hmm. right? It's just what we, even, in medical school, we're taught that what we learn in medical school is about 10 years outdated. <laughs> so by the time you get out, it's already... Yeah, there's so much that's, you know, that has progressed since then. So that's just the nature of, of the beast of medicine. And that, that's also what makes it so exciting is because there's just new things that come out all the time. Um, and then when we were looking at individual research studies, there's a lot that goes into determining the quality of the of the specific research study. You know, was it done in animals? Was it yep. done one of the a lot a lot of the issues that come out in terms of headlines is often a study will be done in rats or something. Of course, and then, yeah, we love testing on rats. <laughs> and, then, and then people will then assume that it necessarily applies to humans, which certainly isn't their ca- the case. You know, the number of uh, humans that are used in a trial matters. Like, th- there's just so many factors that effectively mean that we can't take any one study necessarily and then just apply it into our lives. Um, you know, and you mentioned, I think, some of the headlines. Like, I think it was a cover of Time magazine a few years ago that said, Butter is back. Yeah. I think we all remember that. And, you know, that was a gross oversimplification of things. So, and I think that you're right in the sense that for healthcare professionals, it's confusing. For researchers and public health professionals as well, it's confusing. So of course, it's going to be confusing for people without a health background, for patients who are going to their doctor saying, you know, I read X, should I be taking Y? You know, and it's these are really important conversations to have. But I think that what it really speaks to is, you know, health literacy and how much we need, you know, whether it's doctors and healthcare professionals um, and and medical journalists to really help translate that knowledge in a responsible way 
um, recognizing that nothing is really black and white, that all of us, you know, something might work for one person, may not work for another person. A research study may be done in men or in college students or something like that that may not apply to, you know, your mm-hmm. grandmother. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of nuances there. And I think that we, we tend as a society generally to really want certainty and really want answers. And I yeah. think the more comfortable we become with these gray areas, I think the better it'll be and hopefully the less anxious will be. And I actually have a piece coming out. It'll be a guide in the Times that's about how do you look at a given headline or a given research study and determine whether or not you should actually change anything. (laughs) (laughs) So hopefully that'll help people. I have nine specific factors to look at. Can you share a couple? Um, So one of them I mentioned already about the animals. Rats or people. rats, exactly. Rats or people, (laughs) guys. Exactly. So mice are not men and vice versa, basically. (laughs) Um, So that's one of them. Um, Another one is uh, just generalizability. So, you know, if a study is done in, you know, college-educated men between the ages of, you know, 45 and 60 or something, it may not apply to your wife. 25-year-old. Yes, exactly. exactly. Um, So really just understanding those nuances. So yeah, I have a a whole list of of things and and hopefully it'll help people. I'm excited for that. So on the subject of of forest bathing, you you wrote another great piece on the subject of nature environment that climate change is not only wreaking havoc mm-hmm. on our world, obviously, mm-hmm. you just have to look at the headlines, but it's also making us sick. Mm-hmm. Why, why is climate change making us sick? So there's many reasons for that. I mean, in my article, so it was for the Boston Globe, I talk about everything from particulate matter, um, so air pollution effectively, that can uh, disproportionately affect people with breathing conditions like asthma, Um, There's other, you know, when our oceans warm, it can increase domoic acid, which is a toxic acid that can build up in certain fish and can be a neurotoxin. Um, You know, there's just lists and lists of things. Sleep can be affected with, you know, all of us have had experiences where we go to bed and it's too hot, we can't actually sleep. Um, So there's just multiple, multiple different issues with with climate change Uh, our mental health can be affected anxiety around it yes especially in younger kids yep yes absolutely absolutely about you know what you know generalized anxiety is like what is going to happen to our planet there was a great did you watch big little lies the second season where where the 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 one daughter is the 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 teacher reaches out and says she's depressed and she's depressed about the environment yes about climate change yes Absolutely. And I think that that is very real. I think that it's really interesting and very heartening to see children, um, you know, taking these activist roles. Um, You know, we we often think of, I mean, Greta Thunberg is a, she's a teenager, but I think that she's really one of of many uh, young people that are really inspiring this next generation and really getting kids to think about their carbon footprint, think about the choices that they make. It was funny, last night I was at dinner with, uh, a good, with a good friend, we were over at her house, and her daughter, who's about 10, came down and was talking about fish. And she's like, I don't want to eat fish anymore because 
it's affecting the planet and this and that. And then we had a conversation about sustainable versus unsustainable fish and fishing practices. But she was able to educate us on some of those aspects. So she said, you know, I, I don't want to eat tuna anymore yeah. and I don't want to eat striped striped bass was another one she, she mentioned. So it's just really interesting to hear children become more aware of these uh, all of these issues. What's your take on fish? How would you rank your fish in terms of sustainability um, I mean, from a health point of view? Yeah. I mean, so I have a chart. So I'm Canadian. So there's an aquarium in BC that comes up with their... Um, list and i know the monterey bay mm-hmm. uh aquarium sea yep. watch i think it's called yep. the monterey bay aquarium in california comes up with it too um so yeah i think it i try to buy wild uh when i can um i've actually cut down on my so i used to be i used to eat like seafood very often now i'll only have seafood usually once a week once or twice a week and part of it is also because i'm trying to navigate the whole mercury mm-hmm. aspect of it too um but yeah i try not to you know i think the striped bass is one of them um chilean sea bass is another one that can be you know is not very sustainable um so yeah wild when i can um canned sardines are actually a good a good option and salmon so wild salmon is great in terms of the omega omega threes so from a health point of view um those are balancing health and sustainability those would be things that i've i've personally found to be best so you're hitting two of the the five and and smash you know smat the no, sam, I salmon it's like the salmon mackerel, mackerel anchovies okay sardines and herring oh got it like okay. if you rank your fish what i've heard from oh people, interesting like in terms okay. of health benefit like yeah. salmon mackerel anchovies sardines and herring and hmm. I, so smash okay that's a good one i'll try and remember that (laughs) so in terms of you know bridging east and west um you're also you're certified a yoga teacher too right Mm -hmm. i don't teach i don't i know but you're certified you're certified (laughs) i did i started i started subbing for a class i started subbing yeah right when i got my teacher training i think that's when people are the most eager to to get out and teach and um, I started subbing for some classes and then I realized that in order to, like, if you want to be a yoga teacher, ideally you need to be consistent. Yep. Um, it's like anything. Yeah. You can't <laughs> you need go to get your consistent. medical degree and say, I'm not practicing yeah. and show up 10 years later. And- yeah. So you need to be consistent. Um, and so, and I wasn't able to because I had lots of other things going on, but, um, but yeah, but my yoga, we, we get to, we, this is probably a conversation for another time, but my yoga teacher training was actually, it's funny, a lot of people go into their yoga teacher training thinking that they're just going to learn how to sequence, um, you know, a class effectively, but it really is um, an internal journey as much as it is sort of learning how to, sure. how to put a class together. Um, so I found a lot of benefit just from that as well. But su- suffice to say, you, you understand Eastern and Western and the the nuances and how both are, you know, in some ways are complementary and, and perfect and, and need each other. And just what what's your general take on where we are today with, in some respects, the explosion mm-hmm. of the Eastern and the New Age and the stuff that's a bit more out there where 
you know, some of it, the, the science is, is developing and others, it's just like not even, mm-hmm. not even there, not mm-hmm. even close. And, and, and then, you know, Western obviously like grounded in evidence-based me- medicine, like wh- what's your take on where we are today and like East versus West and, and how to navigate that, what, what we can learn and how do we incorporate into our own life? Mm-hmm. So I think we live in a very interesting time. Um, because there's, there is quite a bit of tension between, so even if we were to say just a little, between the proponents of a bio, and I I like to usually phrase it as like a very heavily biomedical approach, because evidence-based is a problematic term in the sense that not everything in traditional Western medicine has a strong evidence base. Tylenol is an example of something. We don't really know how Tylenol works. We just... Really? Yeah, we, we, we've <laughs> been using it for years. It, it seems to have an analgesic, like a pain-relieving effect. Um, so there's things that we just... We don't have, you know, huge randomized control trials for, but we still use. So I like to use the term evidence-informed um, and the biomedical approach. Um, so there's a lot of tension between that and, um, you know, the, you know, circ- people that tend to be more focused on alternatives to, you know, whether it's medication, for example, or the traditional biomedical approach. So, but I think that that tension's really healthy because I think at the end of the day, we're all looking for ways to live more, you know, in a more healthy way and mm-hmm. in, in ways that keep our well-being um, at the center. Um, And when it comes to research, I think that using, for example, mindfulness-based stress reduction is a great example because when John Kabat-Zinn started studying it and looking into it, um, I think it was in the 70s, initially there was a lot of almost outrage in terms of, you know, what is this? It's Buddhism. Like, you know, we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be even studying this. This is at the University of Massachusetts, I think. And, you know, and now we're at a time where there have been so many studies that have shown benefit for things like chronic pain, for example, or anxiety. And um, so it's just a yet another example of how our thinking evolves and the and what we accept evolves. Um, and I just think it's more nuanced and complex. Um, and it involves the research that we do. It involves... The research industry, there's there's reasons we can't study. We don't often, you know, we don't have the resource to, resources to study broccoli because or celery juice or, cel- or like <laughs> celery juice or something like that because we don't, you know, it's not, um, you know, it's it's not a medication, for example. So so there's all of these layers, and I think that that one of the most important things is that we have these open discussions and that we have discussions about ideas and we have discussions that are focused on what we know and what we don't know that are science-based. Um, and we also have to accept where there's uncertainty mm-hmm. and accept that, you know, not everything has to be personal. And I think this gets at um, some of the discussions that we have one-on-one with, you know, a doctor and a patient, but also now increasingly in the media and, you know, the social media social is media. on this. I think we live in, you know, you hit the nail on the head. We live in a an era, well, hopefully it's not an era. Let's just say we live in a year, because hopefully it ends, where <laughs> it doesn't really pay to have a uh, 
neutral, balanced point of view mm-hmm. on anything mm-hmm. that doesn't really get attention, likes, retweets, shares, however you slice and dice it. What gets the most attention is a very strong, divisive, all or nothing point of view, mm-hmm. whether it's politics or nutrition or the environment. Mm-hmm. And that, <laughs> that, that, that's, you know, I would argue that's not really good for anyone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it just ends up, you know, it ends up just being very frustrating and um you're preaching to your own choir yeah and you just become further divided Mm -hmm. exactly and i think that there's and there's a lot to unpack there in terms of just how do we have productive discussions online with people who are who have fundamentally different views right and is there a way to have a civil to have civil discourse even if you know, you may not change the person's mind, but if the goal is to have civil discourse and to, you know, open up your own mind a little bit, um, I think that should really be the goal as opposed to this is the ultimate truth. And if you don't accept this, then you are a quack or Mm -hmm. you are a this, um, or you don't know what you're talking about, or, you know, let's gang up on this person because they're spreading pseudoscience. It's, I just feel like it just gets away at, you know, what is the goal here? The goal is to have civil discourse. The goal is to get to a closer, you know, version of truth. Advance um, the conversation. Yeah, exactly. Educate and, people, let them become their own. The, the, you know, one of my favorite lines on, on like, on health is from Dr. Frank Lipman, who I who I see is my doctor, and he says, you know, you need to be the conductor of your own health care orchestra. Mm-hmm. You need mm-hmm. to, you know, whatever term you want to use or phrase, you need to be educated. You need to, and I think also what happens with social media is people build followings, and they those those followings are attracted to a certain point of view, mm-hmm. you know, their brand, if you will, and I also think that it's hard for those people to potentially change their point of view when it would upset their fan base, if you will. Mm-hmm. And that's another thing that's just amplified with social media is great in so many levels, but that, that becomes a problem where if I change my point of view, it's going to upset my base. And then what does that look like? And, and I can see why some people are afraid to change mm-hmm. and we talked about this earlier, science is changing so rapidly. Mm-hmm. And I think we're in the, one of the most exciting times where, you know, in some ways, Eastern and Western, the gap is narrow. You talked about like mindfulness something mm-hmm. years ago. So that's crazy. Zen is crazy. It's Buddhist, but like, hey, wow, like there's some. Yeah. So yeah. that's that's the era that, that we're in. Um, so I'm curious in terms of, interesting site like what's interesting to you right now in 2020 mm-hmm. that you're keeping an eye on and you know yeah what's interesting mm-hmm. so i think one of the most interesting things to me is really um again just how more this interest in more of an integrative approach is really you know, seeming like it seems to be expanding into medical schools. It seems to be expanding into 
um, even scientific circles. And I think part of it is this conversation that's happening in the um, the wellness space as it relates to healthcare professionals. And by that, I mean something that we talked about earlier with healing the healers. So, you know, we're living at a time when doctor, a lot of doctors are burnt out. Um, they're feeling that the current healthcare system is not conducive to their own well-being. The expectations on them, is, you know, are much, uh, you know, larger than they have been maybe 10 or 15 years ago. And so we're really having these really crucial conversations about wellness and well-being and what does that mean and um, everything from creating healthier workplaces and healthier um, cultures in hospitals to building resilience uh, among healthcare professionals. And so we're seeing things like mindfulness coming into, um, you know, how doctors are being trained. We're seeing more discussion around nutrition and self-care. And I think ultimately that is going to slowly shift how accepting physicians are in terms of talking about those things with their patients. So I think that's that's really interesting. and I'm working on a book right now, which is very, you know, it covers some of the general themes that, I, that I've written about, particularly for the Times, but just revisiting this concept of health and healing. What does it mean to heal? Um, and when you look at even just the word healing, and, you know, it means many different things in different cultures. And if we take it very literally in terms of when a tissue, uh, you know, if you, um, you know, cut your knee or something it takes you know it takes time to heal but you can actually see if you were to look under a microscope you can actually see you know the cells coming together and the the fibroblasts and all of these things um, happening but the skin at the end of the day the skin does look a little bit different but you're still healed Mm -hmm. but you're not exactly the same you know it doesn't look like it did before so then there's a question of okay have I gone through this particular situation and have, have I come out of it? Um, I'm healed, but I'm different now. And that concept I think is really fascinating, especially when we think about things like going through emotional trauma or mental trauma and um, resilience that's gained from that. You might be healed from something, but you're also, it's, it's more than just going back to what you were before it's like a it's a resolve it's a resilience and i think that's really fascinating too you also wrote a, a great piece on health coaching and is that some, where, where do you see that evolving so i think that's really interesting because i was quite skeptical about the role of coaches for a long time i didn't really know much about um, what health coaches did but i had a friend that actually benefited from having a from having a health coach and it made a lot of sense when you think about um you know people like Atul Gawande who writes you know for the New Yorker for example wrote this great piece years ago about having a not a health coach but having a like effectively a performance coach in the operating room with him uh we know some of the great you know the greatest athletes have had coaches like co- the role of a coach is to push you to be the best that you can be Right. So it actually makes sense when we're thinking about something like lifestyle change or behavior change that you might be able to get to a certain level by yourself. But having a coach there that can motivate you um, and can hold you accountable without shaming you, but hold you accountable um, 
can have a lot of benefits. And I think that there is some interesting, there isn't a ton of research, but there is some interesting research that suggests that it's very promising. That said, I think that, you know, does that mean that every single person should go out there and hire a health coach? No. I mean, number one, it's not always financially feasible for a lot of people. Number two, um, you know, they vary in quality in terms of there isn't necessarily standardized training. But I do think that the principles of health coaching in terms of motivational interviewing, that sort of thing can be incorporated in different ways. You know, physicians and, you know, can learn some of those principles um, so that they can be more motivating and more inspiring. For example, Um, we can, you know, we can coach our friends in different ways in terms of just the language that we choose to use if we're trying to motivate a friend um, instead of saying, you shouldn't eat that or why did you eat that <laughs> you know just using different just it's just about communication at the end of the day yeah 100 agree mm-hmm. thank you so much thanks so much for having me